So welcome to the Sibsi Journal podcast, uh, where today we're joined by some of the authors of the Sibsi, Sibsi COVID-19 ventilation guidance, whose contribution was recently recognised by Sibsi with a President's Commendation at the Sibsi Building Performance Awards. Um, so I'll introduce them. We, we have Ema Maloney, Associate Director and Head of Building Performance at Hawley. We have Abigail Hathaway, a Senior Lecturer at the University of Sheffield. Chris Hidden, who's the chair of the Natural Ventilation Group, the Sibsi Natural Ventilation Group, and Dr. Sean Fitzgerald, the director at the Centre for Climate Repair at the University of Cambridge. So we're recording this podcast almost a year to the day uh, since the UK went into its first lockdown on March the 23rd, um, and that was in a bid to reduce the rapidly spiralling COVID infection rates. We've learned a lot in a year. And in particular, society has begun to understand the role that ventilation has in reducing the risk of infection. Thanks in part to the role of scientists informing government about the critical importance of aerosol transmission in spreading the virus. In this podcast, our guests will be looking at what we've learned over the last year about the virus, what we've done to mitigate transmission risk in our buildings. And also they'll be looking ahead to see how building services design may change in the future. Um, seeing as this is likely to be an endemic virus, despite the proven success of vaccines. To start the debate, I'd like to ask um, Sean, how informed do you think um, engineers are about the transmission routes, particularly the, uh, the airborne routes? Well, certainly over the last 12 months, Alex, I think it's fair to say that we've learned a lot uh, as engineers, and I would, I would argue actually there's still more to learn. Uh, which is which is always important uh, in a discipline like ours. And in terms of the what we mean by aerosols, um, the the discussion with the medics has been extremely uh, informative because as a as a as a fluid mechanicist, what we're really thinking about when we in terms of the aerosol transmission route, this is where uh, small particles can travel from one person to another really reasonably large distances, so not as ballistic trajectiles like droplets, but ones that can then get carried by the air um, onto somebody else's mucous membrane. And the role of aerosols, um, when we think about that as a transmission route, we have to bear in mind a, a number of factors. The first is that those, those aerosols, by very definition of being carried by the air, are very, very small, and therefore the amount of material, viral material that they can actually carry with them is going to be small for each droplet, but actually, or at least particle. But of course, there could be many, many of them. And therefore, that's where the, the issue about us as engineers worrying about the transmission uh, by the aerosol route. And in terms of how we then inter, uh, inter, interrelate with the, the medics and how they think about this, when we're looking at groups such as you know high-risk aerosol generating procedures and the and the kind of equipment and um, and things that they might wear in order to reduce their risk, that can be very different from uh, us as engineers in the wider environment, so not just in the clinical setting, but uh, in a in a regular building, and thinking about what do we need to do in order to ensure that the uh, number of aerosols that could have um, material that's going to be infectious that we're going to inhale, how do we get that concentration down to a sufficiently low level that we can actually be at relatively low risk or sufficiently low risk in order for society to function? As engineers, it's it's an interesting challenge because as opposed to medics, we're involved in designing and operating quite a range of different spaces. So 
some of us will be designing hospital high risk spaces where you've got a very known source, you know, have the infectious patient and you have the healthcare workers at high risk dealing with that scenario. Um, it's quite different to then looking at the everyday life where we're looking at reducing the risk for everyone. You're in a supermarket, perhaps somebody or multiple people might be infectious, but we don't know who and we don't know where. And dealing with those different scenarios, um, it's very different as an engineer, knowing where you have a source or where that source could be uh, anywhere in the space. And I think that can cause um, you know, differences of opinions and approaches to how you might look at your ventilation and your engineering. But it fundamentally comes down to then having to think about the risk of someone being infectious, thinking about all the different routes of reducing that risk, um, and then looking at essentially reducing rather than perhaps removing uh, the airborne risk, which comes down to understanding the aerosols. Um, so I think what's important as, aerosol, as engineers um, is really to appreciate, to start with, that the virus doesn't turn up in the air on its own. So the virus itself is a scale of nanometers. It's absolutely tiny, which if you think of that, it could get through all sorts of things. But in reality, it's released in our saliva. So we're looking at aerosols that come from our respiratory tract, our mouth and our nose. And so we're looking at things the size of sort of one to 200 microns, which is a lot bigger than an individual virus. Um, and so some of these will drop to the ground, which is where there's lots of discussion about safe distances in the media, looking at saying keeping two meters away, because a lot of those um, droplets are quite large and they will drop out. But what you also have to be aware of as engineers is that those large droplets themselves, they're mostly moisture. And although when I say large, I'm talking about something that's you know less than a millimeter, talking about 100 microns. So actually, it's pretty tiny. So it's got very large surface area to volume. So it's going to evaporate really quickly, and it will you know 100 micron droplet, which I would consider quite large for being released when talking or breathing, can uh, reduce and evaporate down to its droplet nuclei in less than one and a half seconds in a, a room about 22 degrees. And so the droplet nuclei is what we talk about when we think about how those initial aerosols from a person rapidly uh, reduce in size and when they're fully evaporated, what you have left. And that still isn't just the virus because your saliva has lots of stuff in it. It might have your virus if you're infectious, it'll have bacteria, it'll have salts. So you're still looking at something that's um, several microns in size and it will vary from person to person. But you're now looking at something that is you know, of the order of less than five microns in size. So pretty small particle floating in the air, but not down to the, the tiny size of a, an individual virus. And so as engineers, we need to think about how that then floats around in the air. Is it going to stay in the air for forever? How is it going to deposit out? And in terms of thinking about the risk of inhaling those particles, it's how um, we can get those particles to deposit out of the air. When they do, you're safe from um, inhaling anything, but you're potentially causing um, contamination on surfaces. Uh, it's seen that breathing it in is probably a lot more riskier than contamination on surfaces but we still don't really understand these routes you know, we're saying we've learned a lot in the last year and we have but understanding how a disease transmits is really very difficult if you look at um, influenza which has been around for 100 years there's still lots of debate about how that's transmitted so the fact that we've got to understand so much about COVID-19 in the space of a year is actually pretty amazing um, so we know that 
you know, it comes out in our respiratory droplets, it floats around in the air. And we then need to understand how those particles move around, what's the risk of the virus in them, and how we can then design our engineering interventions and assess them. How do engineers quantify the risk? Okay, so there's a couple of things you need to look at as an engineer when you're looking at airborne disease. One is you have these aerosols that are potentially infectious. So how do they move around the space? How are they removed from the space? And two, what actually is the, the risk of infection from any of those individual um, particles? Um, so first of all, I guess as engineers, we're more used to thinking about the, the fluid dynamics of the space. So thinking about how these aerosols move around, we'd look to use Stokes' law to think about how they drop out of the air alongside then the inertia of the air movement. So what you have to remember with these particles is they are very tiny. So we're looking at very small length scales, which means we have very low Reynolds numbers. So we're looking at a low Reynolds number scenario, which is where Stokes' law comes in. And it essentially just equates your acceleration due to gravity with the viscous drag from the air, which becomes quite important with such small particles. Um, Stokes' law is something that's often used in very viscous flows and is quite well known for very viscous flows, which obviously air isn't. But as I saying, your particles are really tiny. And this gives us a really good opportunity to do say simple calcs just to look at what your terminal velocities of those particles are, how quickly they'll settle. So how quickly you're removing them from settling. And then to think about, well, if you've got an airflow in that room, how will that move it around? Um, I think what's really sort of important to recognise is that you might come across this and see a lot of early work where it assumes still air. And this is where a lot of this assumption of two metres being a safe distance comes from, because a lot of the early work looked at these uh, aerosols of the size range, I was saying, you know, 10 to 100 microns, and said, well, they'll settle out within two metres, but it assumes still air. Whereas if you look at an air velocity of about 0 0.06 metres per second, a five micron particle can travel over 100 metres if it's moving in a, a straight line and you ignore effects of turbulence and everything. But it gives you a sense of scale that's a lot bigger than just two metres itself. And the air inside buildings isn't still. So as an engineer, it's understanding our air isn't still, where it's moving from and to, and how that will transport the particles is really important. Um, the next thing is understanding how infectious um, the particle actually is. And there's a, a particular a parameter called a quanta that was defined by William Wells back in the 30s. So William Wells is really pioneer of airborne infection. He's, he's worth looking up if you're interested. Him and Richard Rye did a lot of work proving that TB was airborne. And everything we've been talking about, thinking about aerosols dropping out of the air, how they evaporate, is all William Wells did early work in that. And he defined this sort of quantum of infection, which as an engineer you can use in the Wells-Riley model that they developed, which basically defines the risk of um, infection of airborne disease. And it particularly looks at indoor spaces because it explicitly references ventilation. And within that, it looks at the risk of infectious person and susceptibles. And the quanta is used within that to defining how infectious the disease is. So that's Sounds very useful, sounds very practical because it includes ventilation and it is. Um, the difficulty is defining the quanta itself because so you're saying understanding how a disease spread is really difficult, then understanding how infectious it is is really difficult and it can vary a lot from person to person in particular scenarios. So the quanta is usually calculated from a particular outbreak or several outbreaks and it because it's calculated and back calculated from an outbreak, it includes both how infectious the disease is, 
how many aerosols are released from the person, which varies in what they're doing, but also how susceptible people in the space are. And so for TB, there's values have been calculated between like six and over 500 quanta per hour as the infectiousness of this disease, uh, which is quite a big range. And for, um, for COVID-19, there's been some work, I've seen some work um, led by Shelley Miller in the USA. They've looked at the Scargate Choir concert. So they about calculated there that there was 970 quanta per hour, which is a lot higher than TB. Um, they had an error on that on plus or minus 390. So we've got quite a lot of uncertainty. That's for a particular choir concert. And I guess if you've been keeping an eye on sort of the news and things, you probably see that singing is a big risk factor. We know choirs are something that's been banned because of the risk. And that was definitely seen as a super spreading event. So that's really sort of useful to give a, a value of the infectious disease for that particular situation of singing with that group of people. Whether that value is useful in a say, supermarket where people are walking around not talking to each other, I think it's probably not relevant. So for it to be a useful practical tool and get a sense of infection risk, we need a lot more studies to give us a bigger range of quanta and understand how it varies from different types of situations for it to actually be useful. Uh, but it can help to um, give a sort of ballpark figure of very specific situations as we sort of build up that picture of what a quanta is and what the values actually are but we need the studies to underpin it. Thanks, Abigail. Um, I wanted to ask, um, leading on, what, what are the removal mechanisms uh, for these particles uh, that are available to us? Fortunately, there are a number of removal mechanisms, so we should be grateful for the fact that uh, if you've got an infectious person in your vicinity, we're not just relying on any one uh, mechanism by which you actually might be made rendered safe. So the first one, um, in terms of engineers uh, that we've been talking about, uh, is, is ventilation. So removal of the virus, um, and as, as Abigail said, you know, assessing the assessing the risk of uh, you you being uh, infected because there is somebody infectious uh, in the space. Um, the range of uh, material that is going to be emitted by a given person that, that happens to be infectious is is thought to be considerable, orders of magnitude. Um, hence the the reference to a super spreader, a super spreader event, while well, somebody being very very infectious. But what therefore ventilation can do is by trying to sweep away um, the the virus particles that are uh, hanging around in the air and getting as much air uh, as as reasonably uh, possible through a space to get the concentration down. You can't you can't get to zero concentration. It's a case of just making sure that if you've got somebody who is infectious in the environment, uh, getting enough fresh air into space that you're getting that concentration level down. So ventilation mechanism one. There are others. Uh, actually, the, the the virus itself will biologically decay um, over a certain time scale anyway. So that is uh, something else that you can uh, you can factor into a model. Um, and although Ga uh, Abigail mentioned that some of the heavier particles would deposit on a surface, there is a time scale over which some of these other particles that have re remained airborne for some period of time will then end up uh, depositing on a surface of some fashion. And we've seen this in terms of evidence on some filters, for example, in air conditioning systems. So actually you can get deposition on surfaces. Um, the, interestingly, if you've got a number of people in the space, they can inhale 
the virus particles. So you've got other susceptibles that are basically rendering you safe. I don't like to think of that as being a positive attribute, but it is. You asked the question, Alex, what are the uh, various different mechanisms by which you can actually have virus particles being removed from a space? And those are the sort of the four that come to my mind, uh, the ones that we factor in in models. Uh, but uh, colleagues, Chris Eden and Ben Jones uh, and Abigail, we've developed a paper thinking about the different mechanisms and adding them all up so that actually you can then get a better understanding of what perhaps a um, sort of the likelihood of there being uh, an accumulation of virus particles to an individual compared with different settings accounting for all of these different mechanisms. I think one of the other mechanisms that Sean hasn't mentioned is of course that the virus itself being um, biological has a decay factor. It, uh, viruses themselves, some people might not even consider them to be alive, that they require a host cell in which to replicate uh, and so that they are airborne and over a period of time they become unviable. So um, after a period of time half of the viruses that have been released will become unviable and that's known as the half-life and there are various estimates for this. Uh, I think typically people consider a, a half-life of around about just over one hour for the SARS-CoV-2 virus, although that depends on the temperature of the room and the humidity of the room. And that's also quite a considerable removal mechanism um, because although the virus is physically present in the space, it, it's unviable and therefore won't be able to cause an infection. So we can consider it as a kind of equivalent um, removal mechanism. So, so moving on, what would be um, adequate ventilation? What, what, what have we learned in, in, the, in the last year? How, how can we ensure as engineers that adequate ventilation has been delivered to a space? So Alex, um, this is the killer question uh, for us as engineers. So, you know, how much ventilation should we be providing to an environment? Um, and truth be told, um, you know, there isn't a hard and fast answer to this uh, that's been agreed uh, amongst the community right now. However, what we can say is that um, back to the, the overall understanding that your likelihood of uh, becoming infected is a function of the cumulative, um, um, basically your total exposure um, to uh, a number of virus particles, let's say over a, a given period of maybe a few hours. And therefore, it's a function, therefore, not just of what the ventilation rate is, but um, A, the activities which are around, you know, the rate at which stuff's being generated. If you're singing, if you're running, if you're exhaling more, um, you know, that's going to have a higher uh, generation rate associated with that. And then also uh, the length of period over which you wish to be in a given environment. So if I'm only going to be in an environment for a very short period of time, uh, you can possibly cope with being in an environment with a higher level of concentration of virus particles for the same cumulative risk. Now, if we're thinking about, you know, practically speaking, um, um, you know, an office environment, where you might be there for six, eight hours a day. I know that most of us haven't been in that environment for the best part of a year, but let's say that we're going into a period where actually we're going to try and get back to some form of normality for at least a few days a week. Um, then where we are at the moment is that, uh, in terms of understanding, it is, it is um, the judgment at the moment that if you are providing ventilation rates um, in accord or in excess of current building regulations, so we're talking like the 10 litres per second per person for most environments, then that does seem to be, um, you know, a reasonably um, reasonable measures that, that are being undertaken by your employer, 
as to trying to make uh, enough air coming through the space to sweep out uh, virus particles. However, if you happen to be in the presence of a super spreader, somebody who is very, very infectious, I'm afraid um, then even if you were to double, triple uh, the ventilation rate, which as engineers, we, we that's a lot of air and of course it has rather high energy penalties. The, the level of risk reduction that you get by that factor of two or three uh, will be of small benefit to you relative to, as I said, the orders of magnitude that we're talking about there being a super spreader, which is where when you put it into the round, uh, the current thinking, Alex, is that we think modern building regulations um, are probably pretty reasonable. And therefore, it does beg the question, though, if you're in a, an environment uh, which hasn't been updated and therefore you've got uh, ventilation rates which are rather less than that, then I don't think that uh, they are particularly uh, safe spaces to be in for long periods of time. And I do think there is therefore scope for looking at those in order to render improvements and certainly thinking ahead to the next winter uh, when we might not be as spending as much time outside and more in, in the interior environment as to what we should be doing over the next few months. Yeah, so that, that kind of leads onto the question, what, what kind of mitigation measures could there be um, in, in that scenario when we are going back into the offices and other spaces? Ema, um, yeah, if I could put that question to you. Yeah, no, uh, thanks, Alex. So about uh, this time, or about, about the end of the summer last year, and um, we were getting approached by um, a lot of clients asking us how to make their, their rooms and their buildings COVID secure. And like Sean mentioned, there was a lot of question about, you know, how much how much ventilation do I need to to get rid of this risk? Um, and what I spent a long time doing, and I think even still clients are struggling with this, is to help them understand that it is a mitigation issue. It isn't a, an elimination issue. That risk will always be there. Like if you have more than one person in a room, you cannot get rid of the risk of spreading. But what we can do is reduce the risk significantly. Right. So we can do we can reduce it by, by looking at various aspects. And one of them is the amount of outside air we're bringing in. So it's not when you talk about adequate ventilation, we're not talking just about moving air around. We're talking about moving the right type of air around. So you want outside air to come in as much as possible. We want to get rid of any of the inside air. And um, the quality of that air is important as well as I mentioned. Uh, you know, we don't want to bring in loads of outside air, but for that to be dusty and, you know, there's a lot, there's a lot of traffic outside. So we have to consider that as well. Um, the direction of the air is really important as well. So if you have um, a, a air moving in through a room and it's blowing over one person who, as Sean mentioned, happens to be a super spreader, and, even the, and that's blowing onto the next person, then that's actually a real risk. And there was a famous case in um, Guangzhou in China in a restaurant where that happened and they, they, the study was fascinating. And basically it showed that anybody that was in the direction of that airflow was infected. And people that were closer to the infected view original infected person didn't get it because they were beside them as opposed to in front of them. So the direction of airflow is massively important as well. Um, and then how we're going to get rid of that dirty air. You know, we don't want to mix it around uh, if we can help it at all. So once you have all of those ventilation things sorted, you know, once you've, you've kind of maximized the, amount, the most you can get out of them, then you can start to look at whether it's worth putting in additional technologies and in inverted commas. Um, there is lots of stuff out there at the moment, like UV, plasma. I think I've heard carbon nanofibers mentioned a few times, some products out there. And, and like they, you know, they all look really exciting and I'm sure they do something. Um, 
I think the difficulty at this stage is that what how much they do and what they do is very difficult to quantify. And that these things aren't necessarily cheap and easy to put in. Um, and so, you know, I do have a lot of clients coming saying, oh, this guy's offering me X product to, you know, it'll help clear the clear the COVID from this room. And while, you know, in theory, what they're saying isn't necessarily wrong because the lab studies have shown it, the difficulty we have is saying, well, it will get rid of COVID for the air that passes, potentially anyway, for the air that passes over in that particular spot. But, you know, you really need to understand how the air is moving in that room as a whole. Um, and so more often than not, they're not a viable solution at the moment but the, you know they, they are there's a lot of people working on them and looking at them and you know who knows what what will change and um, so really as far as i can tell there is no substitute for good proper ventilation that's really well spread out yeah so, alex, alex sorry can i just follow up the idea of uh, consideration of air cleaning devices and it is a very um, live topic at the moment and mm. i think it's really rather helpful to um express this uh, in terms of what is the effectiveness of a unit in terms of equivalent ventilation rate or additional ventilation rate. It can sometimes just help you calibrate uh, what a given device is able to do. And you know, Ema's completely correct that you know there are some instances where you'd rather not mix the air within a given room uh, or within a given building. Um, but it, um, it's inevitable that there will be some degree of mixing within within a room. And, and it's this is the sort of the fundamental principle, which means that no matter how good a device is at scrubbing air that passes through it, it's going to be limited by the, the rate at which air can pass through that relative to the, uh, the volume of the air and relative to the, uh, then the generation of any further virus particles by an infectious person within the space. And you need to put this into the round in order to sort of make a judgment. So I'm completely with Ema that you need to be very careful about uh, listening to the sort of um, the news about, look, we've got all of these air cleaning devices. Just how we interpret these is not is non-trivial. And I imagine it's really the role of the engineer to kind of understand the contribution they can make. That's going to be quite challenging for an engineer when those clients come to ask them those questions. Absolutely. So they're desperate for a solution. Yeah, they're desperate for you know, a magic wand to be waved and for somebody to come and say, this is a brilliant box, put it in and all the risk goes away and you can have all of your tenants back in the building. Um, but they absolutely all understand that when we say we can't, we can't recommend that you do any of this stuff because we cannot say that risk will be mitigated. You know, there will always be a risk um, at the moment anyway. And so they, they, We've been, we look to people like Sibsi, we look to people like um, the WHO and, and Sage, um, and their advice so all so far has been, you know, kind of what I've said, that, you know, they probably do something, but we cannot really set, recommend them because how much they do and how effective they are has not been proven. And so that really helps us back it up, you know, when we have like Sage and Sibsi to, to fall back on. Uh, so, Alex, um, what, what we find is that back to, you know, the most risky environments, um, are those which are actually pretty poorly ventilated, all right? And that's what sort of the modeling uh, indicates. And what we do find is that therefore, uh, there may be a, a more significant role for alternative strategies, which include some of these air cleaning devices in areas that are currently uh, inadequately ventilated and which are going to be very difficult to retrofit for frankly, maybe a function of the previous design or a function of history in terms of how the building has evolved as to whether you can 
uh, get those to be adequately ventilated. It begs the question of why we're still why we're using those spaces in the first place with multiple occupants, because it isn't just COVID-19. Uh, COVID-19 has certainly heightened our awareness of the importance of ventilation. But you know we are where we are with, within certain spaces, and there may be well you know better places for deployment of these air cleaning devices and focusing on the very hard to ventilate spaces to start with and then it, the best thing would be to actually go and look at some trials where we actually go and um, sort of get these devices uh, incorporated and therefore learn uh, as a result of maybe the last winter compared with the next winter but addressing these specific hard to ventilate spaces is where I think the sort of the current thinking really is. There's um Sean you just reminded me of of a particular client who I absolutely won't name uh, last summer when we were asked to do a survey to check the COVID ventilation strategy in the buildings and some of the spaces didn't even meet building regs so exactly what you just said this has highlighted an issue actually that should have been addressed already in a lot of spaces and i think the the ones that as far as i could tell didn't comply with building reg regulations tended to be the spaces that were naturally ventilated and again this is another topic that really needs to be addressed sort of separately because we have over the last you know 10-15 years been promoting naturally ventilated spaces for energy consumption and for for health reasons um, but it's much harder to control direction and quality of air from that standpoint. So that I think there's a there's a definitely an education piece that needs to happen with building users on how to how the air flows when you have openable windows. You know, opening it a little bit at the top and a little bit at the bottom is much more effective than opening just the bottom. You know, fully up. And um, those sorts of education pieces I think are really important now more than ever. And actually, we've got a really captive audience. So I think you know I think there's something that we can do with that. Um, and then I think the other area that's really interesting for clients to understand, and it's going to be a common one, is fan coil units. Um, and the reason fan coil units are important for this is because uh, their function really mixes air. You know, they they take air from the space, they recirculate it, and they take some outside air as well, heat it up or cool it down, and then throw it back into the space. So the question at the start of all this pandemic was, do we switch them off because they're recirculating air? And there is a lot of discussion about that. And I think uh, where, where we are at the moment is actually, if it means that you're bringing in less outdoor air by turning them off, it's probably more dangerous. So keeping them on and mixing some of that air is safer than switching them off and not bringing in any outside air. So there's, you know, there's, a, there's various nuances to all the ventilation systems that need to be, kind of advice needs to be given on each particular uh, space and taken on its merits. There's a really good point there that Emo raised uh, with regards to occupant education, because again, when we were talking about adequate ventilation, building regulations requires you to provide a means of providing adequate ventilation, and quite often in naturally ventilated spaces, there is a means, there is a window, but it requires occupant engagement with that window to enable that ventilation flow to, to happen. And quite often spaces can be poorly ventilated purely because the occupants don't understand what the ventilation strategy is for that space and that, that they have a role to play with either opening a vent or a window uh, to enable that airflow to come by. And then conversely, people can get um, overly concerned about COVID and, and think that every single window and door needs to be thrown wide open, uh, e even during the depths of winter, which then can create other problems with regard to occupant comfort uh, and problems with um, the heating systems not being able to cope with overventilating the space and in those scenarios that overventilation is probably not reducing your risk much further than you would be going from having very very little ventilation to having adequate ventilation by opening those vents 
appropriately. So that I, I really think there is a, a need to educate the public more in terms of understanding where the air is coming from in their spaces. And, and if there is no obvious means of air entering that space and then they can see that there is a vent or a window, make sure that that's cracked open at the very least. So uh, I'm going to add, you know, my experience is that naturally ventilated spaces, um, as long as they've been uh, A, properly designed, and then B, properly uh, constructed, are probably not actually too dangerous if they're then operated appropriately. The areas that cause me greatest concern are, are the areas which are purportedly uh, naturally ventilated. Um, and I've been into many of these establishments and um, with heightened awareness over the last year, which just rely on an opening door. Um, you know, and I'm thinking of there are a number of retail outlets which uh, that one can think of. They've got a sort of a cooling unit, uh, which will perhaps provide heating as well uh, within the space. But their only source of ventilation is indeed the opening of the door. And then in the colder weather, they keep the door closed. Um, and this is where you think about, right, well, is that compliant with building regulations? Well, theoretically, it could be if they left the door open, but the reality is that they don't. And therefore, it's just thinking through the ramifications of how did that get um, approval to be built when we, when, in corp, when in, you factor in the user behavior as to whether you're going to actually be able to ma you know, maintain your 10 liters per second per person or whatever the building uh, code is that, uh, that you needed to meet. So those are the sorts of areas of buildings that cause me concern rather than actually being particularly concerned about naturally ventilated buildings. So I think if they're well built well and, and, and well designed, then they should be, if they're operated, uh, okay. I think though that's a, that's a huge if, Sean. You know, there's so much historic and legacy buildings out there. And I'm thinking this week with the kids going back to school, um, a lot of schools, older schools, older buildings, they, they aren't, you know, they don't have adequate natural ventilation systems because they were designed maybe, you know, uh, in different periods and then they were kind of you know uh, they had walls put in and the spaces were broken up over the time i know in particular my kids school it, it absolutely before covid ever hit i was discussing air quality with them um, and i think that's quite common and you have a lot of kids in a lot of you know in a small space breathing heavily playing jumping around and you know a couple of small windows to the side so i think while i agree with you there is that is a big if if they were designed properly i don't know I think there's a lot of legacy buildings out there that haven't been. One of the one of the kind of ways I discuss it with clients is um, the the WHO have have said like they have have a roadmap that a fairly recently released roadmap, um, and they they state that the risk of getting COVID is higher in in, in crowded spaces, inadequately ventilated spaces, and um, where people are spending long periods of time together and where people are in close proximity together. Now, almost all those four things are like the perfect storm for a school, right? Because you have you know a lot of people they're together they're together for a long period of time and a lot of the times they're inadequately ventilated. So what I would say to um, building managers at school is try and address those one at a time in as best you can really. So they're crowded right? We'll try and make them less crowded. See if you can spread it out into maybe a ho sports hall instead of a classroom. Um, if they're inadequately ventilated, we discussed you know so understand how the, the fresh air ventilation system is supposed to work. And you um, and make it as efficient as possible. Um, there are long periods of time together. So if we're trying to reduce that, there is uh, suggestions out there that class times get reduced from 50 minutes to 30 minutes, and that could reduce it. And within that little space, they purge the, the rooms, so they open up everything, get the air flowing through, and they all come back in. 
Um, and in close proximity, again, I think schools have have probably addressed that quite a lot already. So um, at lunchtime, they sit apart and, you know, the, the desks are spread apart as much as possible. So, you know, if you can address those four things, I think it'll go a good way to reducing the risk. So, so Alex, you know, um, I'm, I'm a school governor, I've been for many years and, uh, you know, it's really hard. Um, and, and it can be really challenging because um, just because the building that, that they've got and you've got the children all back in, you might be able to have one or two classes in, in the sports hall. But the reality is that you're going to have many children still within a classroom. And therefore, if it's got 30 children in a classroom with maybe 60 square meters. You know, it is that's what we're that's what we're living with. So the proximity issue uh, is something which is a challenge and it's, it's difficult to see ways during the teaching periods where that's going to be sort of seriously changed. Lesson durations, yes, that can be looked at uh, by um, more but shorter lessons with purge uh, systems. Back to the point of ventilation though, Alex, is that in it, when one looks at many of the school classrooms, certainly the ones that I've seen, which are in older ones as well as newer ones, then invariably, if they're naturally ventilated, they may well actually have uh, opening windows available because, um, if they don't, then they've got serious summertime overheating issues. So if you're now thinking about the winter issue, you know, the intrinsic design of these spaces is that they should be able to be adequately ventilated. Otherwise, you know, they're just not going to be able, they haven't been and are not functioning in the summer. And that's not reality. So the essence is right. Well, how do we ensure that the schools are adequately ventilated in uh, in the winter. And one of the simple things is that if you've got schools with windows, with high level and low level windows, that on the coldest winter days, you know, you just encourage the the, uh, the teachers to open the tops of the windows and, and by all means keep the bottom of the windows closed. But if you open as many of the top, well, all of the top windows a small amount, uh, then you get sort of some degree of natural mixing within the space, which ameliorates cold drafts. Um, and you can get sort of adequate ventilation through those spaces. That's the, the sort of the key advice for classrooms which have got the most simple ventilation systems at stake. If you've got controlled ventilation systems, well, yes, that's all great because that can either do enhanced mixing or heat recovery. Um, that's all wonderful. But many, many of the schools that we look at are, are just reliant on opening windows. Look at Victorian school classrooms as well. <clears throat> I know there's still some in existence, but it, it's quite fascinating to see how in the late 19th, early 20th century, people went around designing school classrooms with very high ceilings, with an, um, a focus on ventilation, actually, and temporary ventilation. Quite often, ventilation was brought through via grates adjacent to the, the fire in the corner of the classroom, so it would actually heat the air as it enters into the space. But the, the high ceilings create a larger volume, and Sean was talking earlier about the concentration of the virus in the space being important. So if you've got a greater volume um, for the virus to mix within, then it becomes more dilute. So as well as ventilation providing dilution, you've also got the space volume providing um, um, dilution of the, of the virus, which will mean then that the susceptible person's inhaling less virus over a, over a period of time. So it is interesting that prior to the onset of antibiotics and um, the, the kind of medicines that we have to, to deal with the kind of illnesses that were prevalent during the early 20th century, um, the, the focus on the built environment might have been more conscious of the, the role and the importance of good ventilation with regards to infection control, as, as well as the other issues we consider about good air quality. 
so in terms of understanding spaces day to day for occupants, um, CO2 monitors are, are one way of having a sense of how much air is coming through the space, how much fresh air in comparison to the number of people in the space breathing. So CO2 monitor will give a, an impression of how much other people's air is in the room, and how much of yours is still in there. Um, it, there's been a lot about this in the news and published around and if you've got a set number of people in the room, they will be breathing out CO2. The more outdoor air coming in, it will reduce it. So it can be a very good way of seeing your ventilation rate. Uh, you need to be aware that it doesn't, a low CO2 value doesn't necessarily mean things are, are safe. You know, if you've got a CO2 monitor on one side of the room, you're set really close to someone on the other side of the room, it's saying you've got a very low CO2 value. You still might be breathing someone else's air, for instance. Um, where it is in the space, if you don't have good mixing, you could get high values at some times because it's just close to someone's breathing zone and that's not being diluted but it doesn't necessarily mean it's going elsewhere or you could get very low values because um, the air from other people isn't mixing that part of the room but it is elsewhere so you need to sort of ensure you're happy with the location of that co2 monitor i think what it can be really useful for is if you've got very high values being measured you've got an indication that's probably something dangerous and you want to think about what's going on so I think typically people are saying values of about um, 800 to 1,000 ppm, you don't want to be going above that. And that's about what we'd say for good quality indoor environments anyway. And if you have high values, you want to be looking into what's happening there. As I said, if it happens to be that you've got someone stood very close to it and breathing on it, then that might be just because they've breathed on it at that point in time. So a little blip in a monitoring over a long time, I wouldn't worry about. Uh, but if it's up there and it's staying up there, you definitely want to ventilate your space. And I think it's a really useful to say people are getting more interested in their um, indoor environments and their ventilation. It is something that the general public can sort of get their heads around, understand that, you know, a really high value is dangerous. One thing to be aware of, though, is that low values don't so they necessarily mean it's safe. It depends what the mixing's like in the room. And as I think it was Sean and Amir were both saying earlier, you don't get to very, you can't make it safe, you reducing the risk. And it's all about reducing the risk. So we can't give, you know, a value of what is safe CO2 level, but it can definitely help highlight very dangerous spaces. And the costs of, of uh, CO2 monitors are coming down all the time and, you know, they, they're portable now as well. So even as an engineer, they're actually quite a useful tool to bring into a space when I'm assessing it. You know, you can bring it in, plonk it somewhere for a day and then maybe move it somewhere else for the next day. And it gives you, as you say, it's not an exact science, but it gives you an indication of where the problems might be. I think one needs to be uh, take on board the, the fact that it isn't an exact science and it is about degrees of um, risk, which is associated with a level of potential um, accumulation within the space and the length of duration that you're going to be there. So schools, the daily average uh, CO2 level for a naturally ventilated space uh, that you know, you're seeking to achieve is something like 1500 parts per million. Um, and that's for a naturally ventilated space. And if it's mechanically ventilated, it's lower than that, it's like a thousand parts per million. And this, the reason for the difference in the values uh, is in large part, uh, just as a result of the fact that we've got the vagaries and the variability of natural forces um, with natural ventilation. And therefore, it's just making sure that you then don't end up with um, you know, very, very uncomfortable conditions for periods of the time when you're just trying to get down to a thousand parts per million, for example. So that the advice really is that we should be trying to, at the moment, uh, ensure that spaces are in accord with the modern building regulations. because. 
the areas that are known to be the ones of greatest concern are those which are inadequately ventilated, where you are below the building regulations levels. And it's the ones where you've got, you know, the risks go up, you know, multiple times when you are sort of at high levels of CO2. So if I go into a space and it's 2,000 parts per million, 3,000, 5,000 parts per million, I'm going to make sure that I either don't spend very long in that space or I then start opening the windows because uh, they've not been opened to make sure that we go and ventilate the space appropriately. And it's really the action that is needed on really inadequately ventilated spaces that we need to focus on in order to make society function and safe. Um, and that's where sometimes the value of CO2 sensors can help identify those particular areas. It's important to remember that with ventilation, it's a law of diminishing returns. So from those fairly poorly ventilated spaces that Sean mentioned there of four or 5,000 parts per million, that's probably equivalent to about one or two litres per second per person, which is about a fifth of what, what you would normally be expecting in a space. So, so you can see that if you can increase that ventilation to 10 litres per second, you've reduced that risk by about fivefold. But to then reduce that risk by a further fivefold, you'd be having to bring in 50 litres per second per person or, or around that kind of area. So, so it becomes increasingly more difficult to get a, a return on your risk reduction with ventilating the space. So, so certainly, though, I, I'm more concerned if I'm seeing greater than 2,000 ppm on a CO2 sensor than I would be if it's hovering around between 1,000 and 1,500. I would think, well, that's not too bad. But I, I really start to think there is something wrong if it's um, greater than 2,000 ppm. Um, but likewise, as Abigail mentioned, even with low CO2, it doesn't necessarily mean that the risk is low because CO2 does not is not equivalent to the amount of virus in the space because we, we don't know. There might be nobody in the space who is infectious. So therefore, the risk is still zero irrespective of what the CO2 value is. But there might be several people in who are infectious and then the risk would be quite high. Um, but it does give you an indication of how well that ventilation is working and how well it is diluting the air that's in the space. It's important to remember that risk um, is through exposure over time. You know, a long length of time with high exposure is really problematic. So where you're using a CO2 sensor as well, these values, if it's for a short period of time, it's not such a problem. So your CO2 may creep up, the ventilation kicks in and it comes down again. That's fine if it's getting up to a high value and staying there for an eight hour period, then you, and you're in that room all that time, that's a big problem. And that's where CO2 monitor, I guess, can be useful for occupants in naturally ventilated spaces if they understand, it. if they see it creeping up and think, oh, I'll open a window and it comes down, then that can be really useful. It help, helps to modulate the window as well, particularly during the, the winter time, if you've got a CO2 sensor, uh, often you're like, oh, I'm freezing, uh, but I don't don't close the window because I don't know how that affects my ventilation. But if you had a CO2 sensor that's a, it's only 600 ppm in the space, then you can go, all right, actually, I can get away with modulating these vents slightly and, and, and close them a bit, and it might improve my occupant um, thermal comfort, but also not be dramatically increasing the risk of, of inhaling an infectious dose. And another point on what Sean was saying with regards to naturally ventilated school spaces, uh, although 1500 ppm is, is the target, certainly in the summer when windows are thrown wide open, it's much, much lower than 1500. You'll be getting six, 700 ppm. So the capacity is there within the design. I'd, 
I just wanted to um, kind of make one final point about CO2 sensors and um, that, you know, we can become very reliant on technology and we sometimes use it to convince ourselves there's a problem, there isn't a problem, when actually the opposite is, is true. So to, to also, you know, understand how the space feels to you. Does, if it feels stuffy, then chances are it probably is and you probably need more fresh air. Um, so don't use the CO2 sensors to kind of mitigate, you know, your own personal experience. Great, fantastic. Um, I just wanted to um, finish off now by asking you all uh, th this question. The disease looks like it is going to be endemic. Um, what, what changes to the built environment uh, do you foresee? I think I would follow up on what Sean was saying earlier. That currently, you can design buildings with ventilation openings that may not be appropriate to be used. So, for example, I've got a door that can be open to provide air is that appropriate i think we need to be more careful about thinking about occupant behaviors and the way that we bring and ventilate um buildings we need to consider is this an appropriate way of ventilating the space we, we can do it now it's it, you know, we've had guidance now particularly for schools in terms of bringing in in air uh, without causing discomfort drafts for example so, so I, I really think we need to focus about not just being able to provide the flow rates, but being able to provide adequate flow rates in, in a way that also ensures occupant comfort. Great. Um, and Abigail? I think there's a much greater awareness of ventilation in the general public. And that's actually a, a real positive because we all know that we've had problems with a lot of buildings it's been mentioned here that we have a lot of inadequately ventilated buildings and it's become a really acute problem where you've got uh, airborne disease but that we're still building up health problems anyway from other pollutants in the indoor environment so i think now with more people interested in ventilation we have the potential to have buildings that are much healthier have much better ventilation and have more of the users understanding that ventilation. I do think it's up to us to help uh, feed that conversation and make sure the information is getting out there so people understand you know, how to use windows. But we're at a time now where I think quite a lot of the general public are interested in taking on that information and we can have a real change in how uh, our buildings are actually sort of operated and ensuring that we get sort of good ventilation across the board, which will make environments much healthier from a, a lot of indoor air quality issues. You know, I think there are two things. So there are buildings in existence right now, and there are buildings that are not in existence that we're planning for. Um, so the ones that we're planning for, I would hope and uh, that as a result of uh, A, heightened awareness about the importance of ventilation, and B, actually the changes in how building regulations, the body that's going to be overseeing these and how that might evolve uh, in the near term. Uh, because you know it is a matter of life and death. Right in terms of uh, this building codes. So when we've we've all, we've known about this for a long time when it comes to things like structures and making sure the buildings don't fall down. But actually, when you've got buildings that are inadequately ventilated and therefore, and when you've got a, a, a disease like this then circulating in society, it's just this needs to be sorted out truly properly. So for future buildings, I would um, you know I'm optimistic that uh, we're going to have a, um, a more a robust set of building codes, but more importantly, uh, a, a more robust way of ensuring compliance with those codes, right? Which brings me on to the second point, which is uh, what about the buildings that are already in existence that for some reason have either evolved or been built uh, really not in accordance with what actually I, I would allow a building to be adequately ventilated. So 
I went to a restaurant for just as an example. Um, it was, uh, I think, September time when we were allowed out to play, as it were. I went with my wife and, and the, the restaurant it was COVID secure, apparently. And if I tell you that I went into this, it was in the Midlands somewhere and there were no no opening windows whatsoever there were no there was no mechanical ventilation the ventilation that they had so they thought was the uh, the split ac unit that was just recirculating there in the space um and you know the claims that they are covid secure were just therefore utterly shallow uh, when you've got the airborne transmission route not being addressed and you go and have a meal there for two you know two or three hours now did i have a choice no because i was an hour and a half then from home because uh, we were allowed to travel at that point and therefore we needed somewhere to eat hadn't got anywhere else to go did i feel comfortable absolutely not so what i would really hope alex is that actually when we've got proprietors and landlords that they look at their buildings right right now and think about right when it comes to the next winter when they're not able to leave the door open what are the measures that we can do over the next few months to ensure that those spaces are have been um, an appropriate degree of work to ensure that they are then appropriately safe for the following winter. That would be my biggest ask. And how would we do that? How can we encourage landlords? A, I think um, there's a heightened awareness of the importance of ventilation among society at large. And I think we all have a role to play at flagging this. Um, and then, um, you know, I would like to see sort of, if someone is claiming that they're COVID secure and they go through the checklist, all right, which should include, you know, is this space adequately ventilated? Uh, are they just ticking that um, or are they really ticking it because it is adequately ventilated? So this is a responsibility of proprietors and landlords to say, actually, they do have a secure, uh, a COVID secure environment. And if they don't, they shouldn't be operating when it comes to a situation, for example, when you've got a flare up and therefore the prevalence is too high uh, and therefore they shouldn't be operating. But would it be the role of the sort of public health inspector maybe in the future? It should be within their remit. Um, it's not for me to say which particular government body should be overseeing this, Alex, but there are responsibilities uh, within the health arena uh, that, you know, for example, restaurants and things, they have to worry about the health of the food and things like this. I actually think providing uh, sort of a degree of scrutiny regarding the health of the overall environment, uh, that's one potential option, but it's not for me to determine which government agency should be doing that. Thank you. And um, uh, Ema, the same same question. Uh, yeah, just really to echo kind of what Abigail has said, that I think it will lead and already has led to a greater interest, um, understanding and investment of indoor air quality from building users. I think they're, they're most likely now going to start holding us to account a bit more over that, which is no bad thing. Um, and once they do, you know, what's probably going to follow on from that, at least in the short term, um, is probably less crowded buildings, potentially more screens, less open plan areas maybe, um, more openable windows definitely, um, more than likely, especially in the commercial settings, more um, air quality sensors and internet of things, that type of thing with public displays so that give people reassurance of the space they're about to go into. Um, they, I think, you know, that's the, I guess, optimistic side I mean the pessimistic side is maybe in a few years time we'll forget all about it and just go back to our old ways but I think you know I think it's going to be hopefully a period of enlightenment over the importance of air quality. Right thank, thank you very much and I think we should also add that uh, another SIPSI group is looking at um, air cleaning um, I think Chris might be able to tell us a little bit more about that. The little bit that I do know is the Sibsi Air Quality Group um, is another special interest group. Uh, they are currently 
looking at writing a, a simple guide to try and help people understand the benefits of various different air cleaning devices and to help them to weigh up the effectiveness for the scenario that they have in mind as to whether or not it would be appropriate to to install such devices. Great, thank you. Well, well, thanks everybody for um, participating this morning. Um, it's been really interesting, really enlightening, um, and and it's it's clear that we'll be it's going to be changing the way we're designing buildings. Um, it's an endemic virus. And it's something that's yeah not going to go away, and, and hopefully what Ema just said uh, won't come to pass, and it will be forgotten in two or three years' time. Um, so yeah, thank you very much, and, and thank you everybody for um, your contributions. Thank you. Thank you, Alex. Thank you.